The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, this is the day that you have made and you have given us. So we are glad and thankful and we rejoice in it. We thank you for the opportunity to rest in the completed work of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you that he didn't take us 50% or 75% or 99% of the way then leave that last little bit up to us. We thank you that in him all that was needed for our redemption, all that is needed for our perseverance, that it is all secured and guaranteed and settled. We thank you, Father, that we don't need to be a people who are constantly weighing the scales or grading our own performance or trying to figure out if this is the time that we've sinned badly enough that you're going to kick us out of the family. We thank you, Father, that we can live lives of holiness and the power of your Spirit, not to earn your favor, but with a deep and true desire to reflect your glory to the world around us. Father, we do want to be a holy people. We want to be different. We want to be changed. So, Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would work mightily within us, individually, within our families, and as a corporate body. That day by day, through coming to your Word, meditating on your truth, spending time in your presence in prayer, gathering in this room, that we would be changed significantly, noticeably, changed Father it's easy for most of us to look back 15, 20, 30 years ago and see change and we praise you that we're not who we once were but Father we know that we're not yet who we will be so not only do we ask you to change us Father but we ask you to refuse to allow us to settle in to be comfortable with any man or any, any ounce of sin in our life. To hate it and despise it and seek to put it to death. Father, we confess those sins that we know of. We ask your forgiveness for the sins that we're aware of and for those that are yet hidden. We ask you to make us aware of who we are. Help us to see us rightly through the lens of your word. Do this by, in part, surrounding us with people in this church family that are willing to speak truth to us. Hard and real truth. Father, I pray your continued blessing on this church family. 
Pray that you would continue to meet our every last need, to bring us all the resources, all the supply, all the energy and manpower we need to do the things that you have called us to do. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to fight hard, to protect the unity that you're building here, that we would be a people of single mind and agreed upon focus, that we will be a people with the gospel, with your word at the center of our life and nothing else. Pray that we would love each other well. You would cause us to be quick to forgive and that our first impulse would be to assume the best about each other. I pray for the marriages all throughout this church, Father. I pray that you would heal those that are in times of brokenness and struggle. pray that you would strengthen those that may not be in that season right now. I pray for our children and students. Father, that they would catch a, a burning passion and a real desire for you, for worship and for study and for prayer. That, Father, our kids would be better than we are. It would be better than we were. Not better in terms of little good citizens, nice little obedient boys and girls, but in terms of their spiritual maturity. That they would own their faith, that they would be even at their tender age, that they would be children that charge hard after you. We don't want our children to have to have some crazy, over-the-top testimony about their lives being called back from the brink of destruction. Father, we'd be just fine if they just walked in obedience from this day until the very last. Father, we pray for those in our church family that are sick or sad or lonely or hurting or scared. We pray that you would be merciful to them. Meet whatever need they have, even if they don't know what that need might be. Father, we pray for David's mom tonight. We pray for Helen Lee. pray that you would be with her after taking a fall, that you would help the doctors know exactly what's going on and how to best care for her. That you would give she and Ivan and David and Leanne, the rest of the family, wisdom with regards to how to respond to this. But Father, there's many other instances like that, people that need wisdom and healing and comfort all throughout our church, so we pray that you would give that to them. Father, as we approach your word now, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would never grow tired or count a story like Jonah to be a kid's tale that we have somehow is inapplicable to our life today, that we would see you and ourselves and your gospel right here in the middle of this story. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right. So as I mentioned, and as I'm sure you know, if you've been with us the last few Sunday evenings, we are in the um, we're in the minor minor prophet of Jonah. We come tonight to the third chapter. Jonah breaks up nicely into 
each chapter its own little division, its own little snapshot of what God was doing, what God was unveiling to us throughout history in the life of this man that he had, he had called to himself. And so tonight the plan is we will complete chapter 3 and then God willing next week we'll move on to chapter 4 and then I don't remember which, uh, which of the minor prophets is next. I'd, I'll give you by next week a heads up so you can have time to read through it and start considering it for yourself. Keep me honest. Make sure I'm not making things up that aren't there. But if you've been with us these last, these last three Sunday evenings, you know the story of Jonah. I, I pray better than you did when you were in Sunday school as a, as a little boy or a little girl. You recall that Jonah was a prophet. He's a minor prophet, not because he was unimportant, not because he was short, minor prophet because his writing is shorter than what you find in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So what we find here is that God has called this man, this prophet called Jonah, and sent him to an evil people, a wicked people called Nineveh, to call them back from the brink of destruction. The word of their evil, their sin, has reached into heaven, and God has called this man. Now, you'll, you'll recall that Jonah was a prophet previous to this calling, that Jonah had already spoken a word over the people of Israel and promised them that they would recapture some land that had been lost, land that was previously theirs under King David. So he'd enjoyed success as a prophet. But now with this calling from God, Jonah decided he did not want to take this mission on. And so he went the opposite direction, which led Jonah out onto the sea on a boat headed for Tarshish. The scripture tells us that God cast a wind onto the sea. The the sea got incredibly rough. The boat started breaking apart to the point that these seasoned sailors, they were crying out. They believed that destruction was near. And yet they knew that surely this was something supernatural, that surely someone had offended one of the gods. And so they began crying out to their gods they began to throw their, their cargo overboard only to find this man called Jonah asleep in the bottom of the boat. They woke this man up, the captain did, and asked him, what are you doing, you sleeper? Call out to your God that maybe he would spare us. Of course, Jonah didn't pray in that moment, but he did confess that he was a man who was fleeing from God. He was a man who had been called by God to carry out a very specific task. You see, there was no confusion in Jonah's mind. Jonah wasn't disobeying God because of ignorance. He knew exactly what the call was, arise and go to Nineveh, preach this word to them. He confessed this to the sailors and told them that the only way that they would be spared is if he was thrown overboard, that his life must be, his life must be taken in order for God's wrath to be appeased and for them to be safe. And so reluctantly, after trying to row back to the shore, the sailors took him up on it, they threw him into the sea, and the scripture says that God appointed a giant fish. God had brought that fish there for this purpose, that it would swallow Jonah, and that Jonah would then stay within the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. That's what the scripture tells us. And it's within the belly of that fish, we read last week, that Jonah recounts a prayer that he had offered up to God as he was sinking down and he saw his life leaving him. He says he was to the very point of his soul fading. He was about to, I'd imagine, black out. He then cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord and he says, this thing that you have called me to do, I will do. I have sinned against you. What you have called me to do, I will do. He thanked God for the fact that God had spared him. See, when I was a little kid, I always thought that the fish itself was God's judgment. It was the storm that was the judgment. The fish was God's deliverance for Jonah. An uncomfortable deliverance, as you recall from last week. We don't get to pick the ways in which God saves us. We don't get to pick the ways in which God shows up. Oftentimes, it's something as uncomfortable and stinky and gross as the inside of a giant fish. So you remember we kind of left a bit of a cliffhanger last week. We didn't finish the last verse in uh, Jonah 2. We left Jonah inside the belly of the whale, 
inside the belly of this fish, having offered up this beautiful prayer to God. And so I'll read to you now from Jonah chapter 2, beginning in the 10th verse. We'll read all the way through chapter 3, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we read here, after these three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, three Sundays in, I'm still calling it a whale. Victoria, is that okay with you if I keep calling it a whale? It's a giant fish, but I'm going to call it a whale. We read here in verse 10, after offering up that magnificent prayer, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. God responded to the prayers of Jonah. And again, we see God's sovereignty, able to speak to this fish, and this fish will do exactly what God has commanded. And we see here that the prayer of this man who was once running from God, you recall that in Jonah's prayer, there was a desire for the comfort and the presence of God to yet again see the face of God. And we talked about the irony in this, that this man, his ultimate desire was to run away from God, not just to flee from God, but to flee from the people of God that he might not hear his voice. He might not hear any reminder of God's word. You remember on the boat, there was that reminder, as the captain said, arise, the same word that God had used, arise, you sleeper, what are you doing? Remind that we cannot run far enough to escape the word of God. So now all of a sudden, the presence of God that he had originally fleed from now came upon him in terror in that storm upon the sea. As the sailors threw him over and he began sinking down to his death, surely headed down to Sheol, now all of a sudden he cried out for that presence that he had once fled from. So even in this, as he cries out, we hear that God hears the prayers of this man and he responds. 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Jonah cries out, God, you want me to go to Nineveh? I'll go to Nineveh. God says, that's my will. I think I'll respond. This isn't a name it and claim it type verse. This isn't a genie in a bottle type verse. This is what happens when the people of God come into contact with the God, the, the God of the word of God. They recognize the sovereignty of this God, the absolute control of this God. They realize that to rebel against him, to resist his will is absolute foolishness. We submit our will to his will, and all of a sudden our prayers become the kind of thing that he answers. 
Psalm 37, 5, commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. We see Jonah trusting in God. What else can you do when you're in the belly of a fish that you know God has sent? What else can you do when you find yourself in a storm that you know God has sent? God will allow you to do this, to resist and to fight and to kick and to cry, to funnel you right where he wants you so he can reveal you're not getting away, to break your will, that your will might become his will and that you might cry out. But I ask you, how many times have you found yourself in a spot like that? Maybe not as clear-cut as Jonah. You didn't have a word from God where you knew exactly what you were meant to do. But those times when you were resisting God's will, you knew it based on something in his word or perhaps just the conviction of your spirit or maybe a word from a brother or sister. You knew what was the right thing to do and you fought and you fought and you fought and then you went into your prayer closet and you prayed for something idiotic and stupid, something earthly and fleshly and you knew no way does that match up with the will of God. We do well to search the scriptures and find out, God, what is your will for me in this time? To surround yourself with godly men and women that can give you a word of counsel. Help me to find God's will in this time so I can offer up a prayer that would be pleasing to him. Now, the scripture says that he was vomited out from the belly of this fish. Remember our reference to you when we first began talking about the story of Jonah, how people got all excited a year or two, maybe it was three years ago, when there was a YouTube video of a kayaker that got swallowed by a whale just for a moment, and then he immediately spit him out. Everybody said, see, see, this thing can happen. I reminded you that we don't need some natural explanation for supernatural things. Things are real even if YouTube hasn't captured it for us and recorded it. But even with that man, we're reminded that he just went into the mouth of the whale. I mean, really, it was remarkable. Have any of you gone and looked it up yet since I mentioned it? It's pretty cool, right? Yeah, it's cool. He only went into the mouth. You don't vomit from the mouth. You spit out from the mouth. He was in the belly of this whale. And the belly, and from this place, it says that he vomited him out onto dry land. And I, I'm trying to picture how this worked. Clearly, if God wanted me to know exactly how it worked, he would have revealed it. But I don't think I'm out of bounds for wondering, how does this work? Did this animal beach itself? Did it die? Did this whale beach itself and then vomit him up there? Did he just get him close enough to shore that he could vomit him from there? We don't know, but what we do know is he landed on dry land. That the God who had sent the storm, the God who had sent the whale, he then orchestrated all things directing this animal's path to make certain that he vomited up Jonah in a safe place. I have to imagine back in Palestine, back where he had begun his journey. And how often is that the case? You resist God, you flee from God, you seek to run from God, you find yourself right back at the beginning. Let's try this again, son. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. He finds himself right back where he had begun. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, this may be right, but when I was a little boy, I always had this picture of the fish comes, it vomits Jonah, the word of God comes, Jonah is still like he's covered in whatever you're covered in when you come out of the belly of a whale, and immediately he runs to Nineveh. Now, of course, in my mind, Nineveh and wherever he took off from, Joppa, I guess, were like here, right, that he just ran to the little city next door because that's what it looked like when I used my little uh, tongue depressors. What do, you, what do you use? What do you call those things? Tongue depressors, right, Huh? Popsicle sticks, right, yeah, Jonah on the popsicle stick, Nineveh was just right here, and I just ran him there. That's probably not the reality, right? Well, number one, we know it's not the reality. We know it was a great distance. But in addition to this, we're not told that it was immediately when this word of the God came to him. It could have been months. It could have been years. We don't know. 
or it could have been immediately. We're not altogether sure. All we know is that for sure, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, we're reminded that God is not always, nor is he required to give people a second opportunity. He didn't owe Jonah another opportunity. He could have taken Jonah's life. He could have had him vomited back out on the land just to be done with him, to say that was a failed experiment, Jonah. You're done. Your days as a prophet, your days of being used of God, your opportunity for whatever blessing comes with obedience to me, that's done, no second chance. And so as I was playing around in the Bible this week, I found a story that I was familiar with but had never really dug into much. Bizarre story from 1 Kings 13 about a prophet. There was an obedient prophet that God had sent and he had delivered a word to the people about their altars and, and, and the, uh, the high places that they had built up and the, 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 the false worship that they were engaged in in Bethel. So God had told this prophet that you're to go to Josiah and you're to warn him that he must tear these things down. And then as a proof that you are really a prophet of God, I myself will tear these places down, but then you must leave. Don't stay there. Don't even, don't even take a night there. Don't eat a meal there. Don't do anything. And we're told that this prophet, he does what God has called him to do. He turns and he head, goes to head back home after his prophecy has come true, after he has delivered this word. But then there's another old prophet. This other prophet comes to him and says, hey, just pull aside for a little bit. I've got some bread. I've got some water. You need to rest. You need to revive yourself before you make the rest of the trip home. We're not told why he listened to this old man and turned aside, but he did. Do y'all know this story? Yeah. He turned aside and he does. He, he has a meal there in this place. 1 Kings 13, 23 says, After he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet who had brought, whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him, and his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. Reminded that God is not required to overlook disobedience. God is not required to give second chances for disobedience. That just as God can send a whale to spare man, he can send a lion to tear a man to pieces. That there's no promise that another opportunity comes. I've not talked much to you guys about God's calling on my life to be a pastor. A few of you in this room have, have heard about this, but I will tell you that while I know that God was moving pieces throughout my entire life, the, the decision the response to God's call for me to become a pastor took place literally over the period of about three minutes. I found myself in a place, it was a business meeting. I found myself sitting there and as strongly as I've ever felt any compulsion in my life, I felt as though God was saying, me, saying to me, you're not built for this, I've called you to go and preach. Now, I'm not telling you that this is some inerrant, infallible something, he has led me here. But I'm telling you, I felt as strongly as anything within my spirit that this was a thing I must respond to. And I will tell you that just as strongly as I felt that in that moment, I felt the, ur the urge that if I don't respond now, something will pass. That he's not guaranteed a second opportunity to respond in obedience. And yet he gave this man, this reluctant prophet, who had done something much worse, much worse than having a meal within a town that God has told you to leave from, much worse than dissuading another prophet from not having a meal in the town that God has told you to flee from. He has directly rebelled against God, and yet God responds. And we're reminded that God's response to our sin is not always directly proportional to the grievousness of our sin. We don't know. We don't know what those lines of no return might be. We don't know what response, what 
what fallout particular sins might bring in the here and now. So we see the great love of God, not only an offering to this man, an opportunity to go a second time to Nineveh, but his great love to these people in Nineveh to bring them to repentance. We're reminded that just as God doesn't owe us a second opportunity for obedience, he owes no one an opportunity for repentance. Scripture says that all man is without excuse. People often ask, what about the innocent man on the desert island that never hears about God? What about the innocent man on the desert island that never hears the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know the answer. The innocent man on the desert island that never hears about Jesus, he goes to heaven. But there's no such man. There's no such man on a desert island that is innocent before God. Because everyone has seen and suppressed the truth. Everyone has exchanged the glory. Every man is without excuse. But that he owes no man the opportunity for repentance. He owes no man the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to come to repentance. And we see evidence of this in Matthew's gospel. We've referenced this text, I think, a few times here on Sunday mornings in the last couple of months. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works that had been done in Tyre and Sidon. I'm sorry, I got Let me try again. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So when we read through this scripture, one thing is abundantly clear. Jesus is saying there are things that could have been done in Tyre and Sidon that would have led them to repentance. There were things that I could have done. There were things that could have been revealed to the people of Sodom that would have caused them to repent and to remain until this day. But God owes no man repentance. God owes no man the opportunity to turn. God owes no man a sign or a wonder or a word or a miracle. God owes no man a prophet to come and call them back from the edge. God owes no man a preacher to stand before them and tell them 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Do you understand? It's an unbelievable act of grace when God sees fit to deliver to man an opportunity for repentance, a call back from the edge of destruction. And God knows exactly that thing which would bring them there. We read in 2 Timothy 2.25 that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We're reminded that God uses means to accomplish his thing. One of those means may be a patient preacher. It may be through the work of a patient preacher or a brother or a sister or an evangelist that he delivers the words to men. He uses that word to soften their heart, to grant them the gift of repentance and to save their soul. So we see the all-encompassing way in which God brings about the salvation of men, not just in delivering the words to men, but granting them the gift of repentance and respond to that word. We see how salvation truly is of the Lord and what an incredible gift it is. Sadly, a gift that many 
this opportunity to hear the word, to have men call us to repentance, sadly a gift that many men will find standing against them in judgment at the last day. Again, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 11, for the day of judgment will be more tolerable for the people of Sodom. It will be lighter for the people of Tyre and Sidon than for you, Capernaum, Bethsaida. Why? Because they were the ones who saw the works. They were the ones who heard the word. So every bit of preaching that we sit under, every ounce of of teaching that we listen to, every ounce of exposure that we have to the gospel of Jesus Christ, every day that we receive those things and we don't turn back in repentance, we risk standing someday in judgment before God knowing that thing is piled up. That thing stands against us as witness that we were favored. We received a gift that all the rest of the world did not. We're not those little children that are sitting in some slum in India that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. We're the people who sit in church houses just like this with exposure to Bibles and preaching and teaching and surrounded by people of God. So we must repent. Verse two. So the word of God comes like this. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So he says here that it's a great city. Elsewhere he says it's an exceedingly great city. You won't find really any kind of consensus amongst uh, commentators on whether this is great as in importance or whether this is great as in size, or maybe it's both, great as in importance and great as in size. We don't know for sure, but we do know one thing, it mattered to God. You remember I told you this morning, and I pray that the one takeaway you had from this morning's sermon is there's no insignificant moments. There's no insignificant things. There's no insignificant cities. Not the greatest city. God doesn't only care about Houston or Dallas or L.A. or Chicago or New York. He cares about those little towns you've never heard of. He cares about those people that you may have never once cast a thought towards. He cared about the people of Nineveh. Now, it was, by all accounts, a big city, a metropolitan city, a a wealthy city, perhaps a place where there were palaces, where the Assyrian king might have hung out at times. But he tells Jonah that you're to go to this place and deliver the message that I tell you. It's almost as if what God's saying is, Jonah, you're not going to backdoor this thing. Okay, you tried to run, and now you're you're going. I'm calling, and now you're going to go. And when you go, you say the words that I give you to say. Because can't that be the temptation? God places it on your heart. You must go to these people. You must go to this brother. You must go to this this sister. You must deliver this word. And you know what the word is because Scripture reveals it. It's a word of comfort. It's a word of peace. It's a word of forgiveness. It's a word of encouragement. It's a word of confrontation. And our little pea brain gets in the way, and we want to start twisting that into something that's more palatable, something that eases discomfort. I am convinced, I am utterly convinced that one of the greatest enemies to true, robust, Christian life, walking in obedience to God, is our desperate desire to never be uncomfortable. We hate being uncomfortable. I'm not telling you that I mastered it. I'm a pretty uncomfortable guy. I make other people uncomfortable, and I'm okay at times being uncomfortable. There's plenty of times when I just would rather throw up than have some conversations. But if we would be a people that recognize that we desire holiness more than we desire comfort, we desire to speak God's words more than we desire to, to coat them with sugar or make sure they go down easier, that our ultimate desire, that our number one passion is we would be a people of the truth. We will be a people who speak the word of God. We speak it in love. Absolutely. We season it with love. We, we inspect our own motives to make sure we're not trying to hurt, not trying to wound, not trying to destroy. But when it's clear that this is a word from God, this is the word that God has for this brother or this sister, and I don't always get to be like Jonah promising we're going to get some land back. Sometimes i got to be like Jonah telling people, repent or you're going to be destroyed. That we don't get to make up what those words look like. 
We speak the word of God. Again, this is true, not just of a prophet, not just in times of confrontation, in every single area. Begins in our own home, the way we speak about God to our children. We speak about God to our spouse and our coworkers. It's especially true. I find this to be true of me. I confess to you this morning. I, I don't know. It's confession. You know this, guys. I'm a work in progress. I'm trying to figure out how to preach. Okay, we've just hit the four year mark. I've been here four years and a couple of months now, and I find that God is radically transforming the way I understand preaching. And I pray that's always the case, right? I mean, I pray it's in four more years. There's continual. Okay, what am I doing here? But I'll tell you that one thing that has never changed with regards to the way that I will approach this place. And I pray to God by His grace and by His Spirit that this will never change. That my ultimate goal is I'm just going to deliver you the truth. That when I go back into my study, however many hours I get to spend in a given week to prepare a sermon to bring to you people, that my number one priority, that the vast majority of that time is just, God, what are you saying here? Before I figure out how it applies, before I figure out how to deliver it, before I figure out anything else, God, what does your word say? Because the message that you tell me, I will tell them. Oftentimes knowing it won't be pretty and it won't be received well. That's not just the message for the prophet. It's not just the message for the preacher. It's for every single believer. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Now, we're not told that Jonah likes this mission any better this time, are we? We're not told that Jonah's excited. We're not told that Jonah changed his name. As a matter of fact, when we get to chapter 4, we'll find out he's not that jazzed about it. But this time he went. This time it says that he arose and he went to Nineveh because he knew that resisting would be useless. Now it says three days journey, and again, this is a thing that commentators can't really agree on. What, what does this mean? You, you've probably heard the most common understanding of this is that it took three days for Jonah to walk through the city, to make his way through the city, because you see the word breadth there, but breadth isn't in the original. That's a supplied word. Supplied just means when people take the Hebrew or they take the Greek and they translate it into English, there's certain words that you've got to insert in order for the thing to make sense at all. You tracking? And so they'll add these words, and then when you look through, when you compare the English to the Hebrew, it'll say breath is supplied. It's added. It's, it's, a, it's a commentator's note to us, a translator's note to us to try and make this thing make sense. So we don't know. Is it three days' journey breath? Or is it? So perhaps that's it. That's probably what you believed when you were a kid, right? Jonah was, was vomited up on the land. Immediately the word of God came. Immediately he went to Nineveh, and it took him three days, and he was just wandering around like a madman, just screaming at everybody, 40 days and doom comes. 40 days and you'll be destroyed. But, but I found another commentator, a guy named Douglas Stewart, and I don't know, this doesn't settle the case, but this seems to make a little more sense to me, that he says that in that part of the world, in the, in, in the ancient Near East, in this part of the world, in a city, a great city, a, a, a proper city like Nineveh, there would have been a certain process you go through in order to get a hearing with the people. The day one comes and you're settling in and you're finding out where you're going to stay and you're figuring out the lay of the land. That's day one. The day two comes and you express your intentions and you show your bona fides and you let people know where you've come from and why you're here and what your intentions are because you're a stranger. And then day three, perhaps, if the people are willing to receive you, then you'll get an audience with someone of import, the king or one of, his, one of his minions. Perhaps that's what this is. But either way, I think that the picture of a wild man just running through Nineveh screaming, that's probably not the most likely. Probably it was something much more controlled. It was more of a proper process for him, granting, for him seeking to be granted a, a hearing with the proper people in the city. Verse four, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Now this would seem to be in contrast to what I just said. 
that it's, it seems to say that it's a great city. He traveled one day. One day would put you what? I guess if it's a three days, three days breadth, one day puts you in town square, puts you in the middle of the city. So, so maybe that's what this is. Or maybe it's that he was going through this proper process and he couldn't even get there. The people wanted to hear what he had to say. That as the people found out why he was there, as people heard that they have received a messenger from God, a messenger from Israel, a man with a message from God. Maybe they had heard about the story of the fish. We don't know. But the people seemed to be anxious to hear his message, even before he got to meet with the king or anybody of great import. And he called out, this is Jonah, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we're not told that expressly that Jonah tells these people, but if you repent, you will be saved. This could have just been, they could have received it as just a statement of certainty, just a foregone conclusion. Oh, we're going to be destroyed. You've given us 40 days to get our affairs in order. You've given us 40 days to kiss our wife and our children goodbye before we meet our doom. Now, the word overthrown there, it's not, it's not real clear what it means. It can mean just a change of mind. The Hebrew word for overthrown, it can just mean like a, like a repentance of mind, a change of mind. It can mean the overthrow of the government. It, this could have just meant, hey, you're going to get a new king. God's going to depose your king, and you're going to bring in somebody new. Or it could mean destruction, which is probably the way I take it, that God has heard of the evil of these people, and he's going to destroy them. And so I wonder, was this really the only message? That, was this it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight words in English. I don't know how many in Hebrew, probably less. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is that literally all that Jonah said? I mean, this is a very tight narrative, right? There's not a lot of extra words. There's not a lot of extra details here. There could have been more that he said and nothing more that was recorded for us. But we need to be careful. You see, if we're not if we're not careful, we can make this into all about they saw a dude that was in the belly of a fish, and that's what turned them. And I don't think that's right. I think it's that they believed the word of God. They believed God is what the Scripture says. They heard a word of warning. They knew it was a word from God. Did the fact that it came through a man that they had heard had been in a fish, did that, did that affect it somehow? Maybe, perhaps. But it's not about the fish. It's not even about Jonah. It's about the word of God bringing men to repentance. And we're reminded that the power is not in the preacher. The power is not in the testimony. I've, I've bemoaned to you before how, how badly it breaks my heart when I hear people say, look, you need to get out and share the gospel. And by the way, the gospel is just your story. That's not the truth, guys. That's not the truth. Or is it a good thing? Is it a proper thing to share with those you are close to the way in which God has affected and changed your life? Absolutely. But the gospel is a story about what God has done about what Christ Jesus has accomplished. The call to repent and be baptized, the call to repent and believe, that's a response to the thing that's already happened. That's not the gospel. Your story of repentance, your story of life change, that's not the gospel. What people need to hear is who God is, who they are, what they deserve, and what God's done about it. The invitation of who he is and what he Require, uh, desires to do for you in Christ Jesus, his son. It's not your story. It's not about Jonah. It's a wonderful story. If there's anybody with a wonderful story, it's Jonah, right? But that's not the point. The point is they heard the word of God through this man. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So this, this show of, this outward show of Great physical discomfort, the putting on of sackcloth. Have you ever wondered, what, what does that do, right? Like, is this the little boy that 
he's, he's colored on the wall or he's punched his sister. He's done something bad. He knows he's going to get in trouble. So he goes and puts himself to bed early without supper, hoping you're going to take it easy on him. It seems to me what this picture, and maybe for some people that is it. It seems to me, though, this picture of extreme outward discomfort, the, the sackcloth, the ashes, the not eating, the refusing from water, it is an outward display of agreement with God. I agree with your judgment. I confess that I deserve this and much more. It's true confession. That to confess our sin isn't just to say, sorry, God, I know I did this thing, and I agree. It's to speak the way God speaks about it. It's to believe in our heart that we are who God says we are. And so we see here that from the greatest of them to the least of them, the whole city, the whole city has repented and turned and is mourning. And people have great, they take great issue with that, right? They seem to have more issue with that. People that actually study the text, they seem to have more issue with that than they do the whale. You tell me this whole city just turned? This whole city just repented of this thing that had happened? And again, they try to start coming up with answers, right? I told you in week one that there are some things historically that happened in that day that previous to Jonah's coming, there appears to have been an earthquake and a solar eclipse and some famines and maybe some wars that all happened around that time. And, and people say, well, look, that's what happened. That's what softened them up. Maybe, maybe because God does use means, right? But the reality is that God can turn the hardest of hearts. God doesn't need external events. I, I get so frustrated at times and, and sad, I guess, at times when people will come to me and they'll be struggling at, more often than not with regards to children, grown children that aren't following after God, that are walking in disobedience to God, and they'll say something like, you know, they just need to hit rock bottom. I, I don't find rock bottom in the Bible. I'll find a picture of something called rock bottom in the Bible that God waits on you to hit before he can turn your heart. What did I pray earlier for our children? I don't want them to run like wild dogs. I'd like them to follow Christ from now until the day they die. I don't want them to have some awesome testimony about how God called them back from crack and gangs and broken marriages and all the rest of this stuff. I'd like them just to have a nice, easy, boring story, a peaceful life with God. But there's no such thing as rock bottom. There's no such thing as I'm gonna hit the bottom and bounce back up on my own. That God can turn a heart at any moment he wishes. Now this is incredible encouragement for us that have people that we love that are running from God. He can turn them. We don't have to wait on external events. But it's also a reminder that we don't wait for that thing to happen that you think is going to turn them. The only thing that's going to turn them is God. So we preach the word of God. We pray that by the spirit of God, he's going to do the thing that we can't do and that some imaginary line called rock bottom is never going to do. So we see that the entire place from the greatest to the least they turn verse 6 the word reached the king of Nineveh remember he's been there for a, a, a day a day in now we don't know did he continue to preach after this was he going to multiple groups and and and, and, and preaching this was he maybe what I believed in Sunday school as a little boy he's just running around he's a street preacher now and he's just running up and down every row he can screaming out this one singular sentence message 40 days and Nineveh will be gone who, who knows but the word of this thing reaches the king of Nineveh. The people have already been sitting in sackcloth and, and ashes. So the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published 
through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Can you imagine such a thing in this country? The leaders of this land stood up and said, Repent. But I would point out to you that this wasn't the king that was leading the way. It was the people. The people heard the message. They sat in sackcloth and ashes. The king was following along. Now he added a decree and he included the animals in this. And the poor cows are thinking, what did we do, man? Why are you lumping us in with this? But we see that it is the people whose hearts were turned first. The king hears this news and he does to his credit. I don't want to belittle what this king has has done and, and turning away and repenting, but he too joins them. He makes a he issues a, a proclamation as he follows their response. And we see them repenting with the whole of their life, even the livestock. Now, I tried to connect it. I'm just going to tell you this so you can connect the dot. Is that fair? Sometimes when, when, you're, when you're preparing to teach, there's dots that you know are there and you can't really connect them. And so I'm just going to put these out there. It's not going to mess you up too bad. It's not that big a deal. Put it out there. Maybe you can make something of it. But, but you say, what does a livestock have to do with anything? I would remind you that whenever the angel of the Lord came through Egypt on the night of the Passover, it was even the firstborn of the livestock that he would take. But it's the whole of their life. It's the animals. It's the everything that they're to have, have sackcloth and no food and no water. How long can you last with no food? A pretty long time. Pretty long time. Weeks. How long can you last without water? Not that long. But his request then at the end of this, what's the purpose in all this? He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He knows that he's not owed forgiveness. He knows that even if he turns away from his evil ways, that God would still be right to destroy him and all the rest of the people. That's what true repentance looks like. True repentance is David calling out to God saying, you and you only have I sinned. Praying desperately, would you change me? Would you cleanse me? Would you create in me a new heart? But knowing you owe me none of that. I don't owe, you don't owe me an ounce of mercy. You see, if we're not careful, we can turn repentance into this, these buttons we're pressing on a, she, on a machine and it's guaranteed to spit out something called forgiveness, something called mercy, something called grace. And all of a sudden we just start going through the motions, don't we? We show up in church a little bit. We read our Bible a little bit. We say we're sorry a little bit. We take communion a little bit. We, we pay our penance, whatever that looks like, and boom, here comes forgiveness. Now God has said if you repent, if you turn and you repent, you trust in Christ Jesus, you will be forgiven. And yet we're oftentimes just completely blindsided or, or, or blind to the fact that even that is not owed to us. It's a promise from the word of God, and we can rest our eternal souls upon us, but still it's an unbelievable mercy, an act of grace. So, who knows? We see a prophet called Joel saying something similar to that on behalf of the people of Israel. He says the same words, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Right? It's an internal rending that is needed. Don't put on a show. Don't rip your shirt and beat your back and cry out to me and sit in ashes while your heart continues to be hard towards me. You need to have a torn heart broken in a contrite heart that's what is needed you say well i can't break my own heart that's the point that's the point i can put on a show of sorrow every little kid knows how to do that right 
fake tears, big alligator tears to, to, to show some type of ex- external thing of remorse. But who can, ter- who can turn your heart? It's only God. He says, return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? Now, the prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah 18. See, if we're not careful, we'll approach us to say, because we're going to see as we get to the next verse, you already know that God does relent, that God does turn away. So what is this then? Has God changed his mind? What was the purpose? He says 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And now all of a sudden they do something and he does something. Is this God responding to the people? Do the people call the shots? Is God the puppet? We're reminded that in Jeremiah 18, 7, he says this, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will, resent of the, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That this is God's fixed position. This is God's fixed disposition towards sin and sinners. That the God who does not change destroys those who die in their sin. And he saves those who repent. It's not God who changes, it's his disposition towards us. And we're reminded of all the things that he went through to get these people to the point of repentance that he might spare them. So we see in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do. Now some translations, I think the King James probably says that God repented, and that has a bad connotation. It has the idea that God had made a mistake. And we know that there is no room for God to change his mind. I want you to think about the times when you change your mind. What causes that? Number one, you learn some new information. You learn something that you didn't know before. If I'd known then what I knew now, if I'd known then what I knew now, I would have chose something different. Number two, what you knew you misinterpreted. You just weren't wise enough with the information that was available to you. Number three, you made an evil or a stupid choice. Or number four, you ran out of resources and couldn't complete the thing that you planned to complete. Now, which one of those things can be said of God? None. None. And yet scripture says very plainly that it was in response to their repentance. You see, God doesn't say, I'm going to destroy you. The people continue in their sin. He goes, well, 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 I really wanted to spare you, so I will. That he brings about through the means of their change the thing that he desired, namely to spare the people of Nineveh. But again, I ask you to look at all the ways that God worked to bring these people to this point. Calling this prophet Sending the storm, sending the fish, directing the fish, giving the prophet a second opportunity, calling him to arise and to go, and I would include within that softening their heart that they would repent, they would believe, and they would be spared. We're reminded that this is the story of all of us. Everyone who counts himself a believer of Jesus Christ I want you to think back on all the circumstances that if just one of them would have been different, you might not have, never heard the, might not have ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of all the pieces that the God of the universe moved to lead you to this place. While at the same time, thinking of all the people who had all the same opportunities that you have and continue in their disbelief. We see how salvation is of the Lord. So, what do we take away from this? What do we think about this week as we think about this third chapter of the prophet Jonah? Number one, we're reminded that we must repent. 
that when God sends one to call us back from the brink of destruction, we repent. We turn from our sin and we repent. Luke eleven thirty two says that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. God has not sent to us some sorry, reluctant prophet. He has sent to us his son. He has not left us in some faraway land under some pagan king following after all these false gods. He has seen fit by his sovereign hand to place us in this place to hear the testimony of his son, Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, seated at his right hand. So we must repent. We must not assume that there's always going to be an opportunity tomorrow for us to repent. Reminded of Esau, the scripture tells us that Esau sought repentance but could not find it. Esau was plenty sad about his circumstances. Esau was plenty sad that he had lost his birthright and his father's blessing. Esau was plenty, plenty sad about the fallout from his sin, but the scripture says he could not find repentance. We continue on in hardness long enough, God just might hand us over. We repent. Number two, I think it's okay and right and good that we pray that this nation would repent. It would be an incredible blessing if we found that the nation as a whole, that people all throughout this land, we recognize the evil that we are perpetrating, the evil that is being perpetrated in this place, and there was a national movement, large swaths of the country, all of us, from the highest to the lowest, turning and repenting of the evil in our own hearts, the evils that we have actually committed. I'm not talking about these evils that had nothing to do with me 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. I'm talking about the evil that we commit today, the evil in our own hearts that we would have a boldness to proclaim to the leaders of this nation that they too must repent. Now talking about this little uh, vending machine uh, theology, people most often go to 2 Chronicles 7.14, you know it, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. You see, the problem is most people take this and they assume that of course, the people who are called by the name of God are America. God and country, right? And they turn this into some vending machine thing and they pretend like everybody in this land is just a, is just a Christian. We would all just turn and God is guaranteed to give us prosperity and all the earthly things we could ever desire. Dear brothers and sisters, that's not the picture at all, but we can pray that more lives in this country would come to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and repent. And we would find incredible blessing in this. Jesus Christ, before leaving this earth, he said that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, baptizing men in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you. Surely I'll be with you even unto the end of the age. We take this seriously. We will go and we will take this gospel. We will proclaim it to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to our children and to our friends, and we will call the nation as a whole to repent. Number three. Do not fall for the lie that repentance is a one-and-done thing. I'll remind you that the people of Nineveh, they still found destruction years later. We don't know, was this entire generation spared? Was it, did this repentance last for the life of this entire generation before the generation that came behind them turned back and they were the ones that were destroyed in 611 B.C.? Or perhaps was this just a momentary moment, just, just, just a second of repentance from the evil and the violence that was in their hands that God spared them from this disaster and they went right back to what they were doing. 
But whatever the case, we're reminded that you haven't done, did repentance. That repentance is the whole of your life. It is a constant, everyday turning from sin, turning from self, and throwing yourself in Christ Jesus. Every day from now until your very last. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the story of Jonah. We thank you that you can use even reluctant and stubborn and sinful prophets. We thank you for second chances. Father, there's not a one of us here that has not experienced your grace and your mercy, even as we have run and rebelled against you as you have sought us and chased us down with your goodness. Father, I pray your blessing on these people. Pray that you bless us as we go, that we would take your call not just to repent seriously, but your call to evangelize and to disciple the world very, very seriously. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.